Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. I'd like to say a special thank you to our online donors who make this podcast possible. Today, we are teaching from John chapter 6. We are teaching about the fifth miracle of Jesus in John's gospel, and this episode is entitled The Life-Changing Magic of Walking on Water. Let's begin with a quick review in case you have missed the other episodes in our series on the Gospel of John. Sometime around the year zero, Jesus was born. About 30 years later, he died, and some say he rose from the dead. 40 to 50 years later, a man named Mark sat down to write a biography of the life and teachings of Jesus. This man's name was Mark. And his writing eventually became Mark's gospel, and it is the earliest account of the life of Jesus that we have to this day. 10 to 20 years after the gospel of Mark was written, Matthew and Luke sat down independently of each other, but both with Mark's gospel and wrote their own accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. 10 to 20 years after them, some 70 years after the life of Jesus ended, John sits down to write his gospel. He most likely looks at Mark and Matthew and Luke's accounts of the gospel, and he says, you know what this story needs? This story needs some poetry. And for that reason, and especially during this series here at Paradox, we have leaned into the idea that the gospel of John is more concerned with symbolism and metaphors than historical accuracy. This is why we talk a lot about what things represent in the stories that John tells us about Jesus rather than the historical data or facts contained within the story. So John builds his gospel around seven miracles of Jesus. And we have been looking at each of these miracles in this series, and today we are looking at the fifth miracle of Jesus, a very famous story in which Jesus walks on water. Now, Jesus did not walk on just any body of water, but he walked on the Sea of Galilee, according to Matthew, Mark, and John. When we hear the words sea, we often think of something that is much bigger than the Sea of Galilee actually is. The Sea of Galilee, at its widest point, is about seven miles across. So it's a significant body of water, but it's not quite as big as what we imagine when we think of the word sea. The other thing that we need to remember is that this miracle takes place shortly after the previous miracle, which is when Jesus fed the multitude of 10,000. We talked about that last week on the podcast here, but what we read about is how Jesus takes just a little bit of food and people say it's not enough and we don't have enough money And all of a sudden, this little amount of food proves to be more than enough for everyone. That story ends in verse 15 when this multitude of 10,000, realizing they have more than enough, looks at Jesus and decides to make him king. We read in verse 15 these words, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, this is very significant to what happens next because we must remember that this crowd of 10,000 people loves Jesus so much that they want him to lead 
all of them. Jesus's popularity is through the roof. People admire and adore him and they want to give him power, but Jesus escapes that power and retreats to the mountains. We then read in verse 16 these words, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, got into a boat and started across the lake to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The lake became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, and it's important that we stop here and remember that this is the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The sea is seven miles wide. So John is telling us when they are dead set in the middle of the sea, all of a sudden there is a storm a brewing and they are in the most precarious position imaginable. Let's return to verse 19 when we read, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the lake and coming near the boat. And they were terrified. In 2020, we often look back at stories in the Bible with a sense that we would know better than the people that are experiencing things in Scripture. And this idea that we wouldn't be terrified when we're in the middle of a lake in the most precarious position during a storm and all of a sudden we see our friend walking on water, you would think that your life was flashing before your eyes or that your mind was playing tricks on you. I think that the disciples are terrified here because they think that this is the end and that their brain is hallucinating because they are surrendering to death. But it's here that John says that Jesus speaks to them in the middle of their terror, in the middle of this storm. And we read about what Jesus says to them in verse 20. Before we read what Jesus says to them, though, I want to ask you, what do you think Jesus says to these terrified disciples? If Jesus could say one thing to embody all of Christian theology to these disciples, what could he say that would communicate the message that would carry the Christian message home? After all, John is concerned primarily with symbolism to carry the narrative of Jesus, not historical facts. So you can imagine that here the storm represents all of the suffering or the trials that human beings face on a daily basis. This storm represents things that we did not plan for. This is when things fall apart and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a precarious position we never asked for. What does Jesus say to you in the midst of your storms? Because I believe that if most Christians were writing this story today and Jesus shows up walking on water to a terrified group of disciples, I think that Christians would have Jesus saying these words, repent, ask for forgiveness, and I shall deliver you from the storm. The moment you say you're sorry, Jesus would say, is the moment that I will grant you or give you safety. It's the moment that I will give you deliverance. In my experience as a pastor, I have found that this is what most Christians perceive Jesus to be. But Jesus doesn't say to the disciples that they need to repent. Jesus says something else 
entirely. And if you hear only one thing from this podcast, then my hope is it's the words of Jesus as he speaks to them in the middle of the storm. In verse 20, we read, But Jesus said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now it's here in verse 21 that the story takes a rather unexpected turn. And what's interesting is I've often heard the story of Jesus walking on water told from the other two gospels' perspectives that tell this story. Matthew talks about Peter walking out on the water toward Jesus. Mark talks about Jesus going into the boat and Jesus calming the storm. But here in John, something happens that I've never heard told to me before. And before we go any further, I want to remind everyone who is listening that when John wrote this gospel, he did not expect you to read Matthew and Mark's gospel as well. John wrote his gospel as a standalone gospel. And so when he tells a story, he's assuming that this will be the entire story you read about this. So in verse 21, we read these words. Then the disciples wanted to take Jesus into the boat. And immediately, the boat reached the land toward which they were going. Now, there are some translations that say that Jesus actually went into the boat in John's gospel. Regardless, what happens is just the fact that they want Jesus to be in the boat instantly transports this boat to the shore. Now, I don't know if Jesus had some flu powder in his pocket I don't know if he created a magic wave that sped them up very quickly toward the shore. I don't know if he teleported them. What's important for us to understand, though, is that according to John, is that as soon as they had a desire to live without fear, they arrive at the place that they desire to be. A couple of things that we can learn from this story. The first thing is this. Most Christians I know believe that God sends the storms. Most Christians I know that when they face suffering, they have this sense that God is testing them. That if only they can fix one thing about them, if only they could attend church more, if they could only repent, then everything would fall back into place. This is not a story about how God sends the storms. In fact, there's no mention that Jesus sent this storm. And if Jesus actually sent this storm, then this whole story becomes an exercise in vanity, doesn't it? God becomes very vain in an effort to scare the disciples to show off how powerful God is. That's a weird picture of God. So while most Christians I know believe that God sends the storms, this is not a story about God sending the storm. Instead, this is a story that tells us that God is with us in the storms. That at that moment, when all hope seems to be lost, when we are our most vulnerable, it is at that time that Jesus shows up and reminds us that God is with us. And God says to us, it is I do not be afraid. My brothers and sisters, 
God does not send the storms. God is with us in the storms. The second thing that we can learn from this story is that the disciples are terrified, but they see Jesus inviting them to live without fear. And all they want to do is to invite him in the boat, to bring God into the boat with them. And it is that simple desire to live without fear that they arrive at where they desire to go. In other words, the story is telling us is that once you desire to live without fear, that is when you have arrived to where faith is taking you. The third thing that we can learn from this story is how Christians have held this story and why they tell others this story is important. For the majority of my life, I was told this story with the question following at the end, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus defied the laws of physics and walked on water? Because if you do, then you can be part of the club. And if you don't, then you can't believe in the divinity of Jesus and you can't be part of Christianity. But I think that this is a baseline understanding of what this story is actually about. Because the thesis statement of John's gospel is the word became flesh and lived among us. The story of Jesus, according to John, is a story of transformation. And anytime we reduce the Bible or reduce John's gospel to the lowest level and just go down to, do you believe it? We are missing the invitation to transformation in this story. How is John inviting us to transform with this story? Because while walking on water may or may not be impressive to you, in my opinion, the real miracle of this story is the ability to live without fear in a fearful situation. And that's why I find the words of Jesus to be so inspiring in John chapter 6. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, this story is a turning point in John's gospel. Because on one side of the Sea of Galilee, people are ready to crown Jesus king. 10,000 people say, we want this guy to lead us. Jesus is popular. But then Jesus and his disciples cross the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus does things that really lower his popularity. Jesus has a choice to be liked by the masses or he can speak truth to power and reveal corrupt injustices that nobody wants to talk about. And so after crossing the Sea of Galilee, the multitude of 10,000 goes around the Sea of Galilee. They find Jesus. They ask him to perform more signs. And Jesus says, I could perform more signs, but is that really the point of faith? And if Jesus wanted to remain popular, he could do all kinds of miracles in front of bigger and bigger crowds. But Jesus was interested more in justice, in changing people's perception of who God was. And we read in verse 66 that because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So here you have the Son of God preaching and people being offended by it and leaving. 
Now, I will tell you that I like public speaking a lot. I don't like it when people leave upset from a sermon, right? But here Jesus is preaching to 10,000 people and people are leaving. And I'm thinking to myself, if he can't do it, then how am I supposed to? Not only that, but in chapter 7, we read about how Jesus teaches about God being present with the peasants of Nazareth. This makes the temple officials angry, so angry that they send police to arrest him. Then in chapter 8, Jesus tells the religious officials that God is much bigger than the religious system. They are so angry that they attempt to murder him. In chapter 9, a blind man is marginalized by society. Jesus heals him, and society casts out this healed man because his healing shatters all of their theological boxes. It's not convenient for this blind man to be healed. In chapter 10, the crowd demands Jesus to tell them plainly whether or not he is the Messiah. Jesus instead tells them to look at what he has done. Then they can decide for themselves if they think he is the Messiah. They get so angry by this that they pick up stones to murder him, and he narrowly escapes with his life. Then in chapter 11, Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead. We assume that this is a nonpartisan issue, but the people in charge who have power are threatened by this. The religious folks are so upset that they end up making plans to kill Jesus because he rose someone from the dead. Then in chapter 12, the religious priests, the religious priests, might I remind you, plan to murder Lazarus because many of their people were impressed by this resurrection. From chapter 13 to chapter 17, there is a lot of talking at the Last Supper. And then in chapters 18 and 19, we hear about how both the church of Jesus' day and the state condemn Jesus to death. He is then crucified and placed in a tomb. In the sixth chapter of John, we read about Jesus walking on water and saying the words, It is I. Do not be afraid. From that moment forward, time and time again, Jesus stands up without fear in fearful situations and speaks the truth. I believe that the miracle of this story, the invitation to transformation, is that Jesus invites us to stand up for what is right. And Jesus invites us to stand up without fear. I think this is what a hero is. A hero is someone who recognizes that they need to stand up for what is right, but they somehow, someway are able to do it knowing full well what the consequences are, and they proceed without fear. This definition of a hero reminds me of Ida B. Wells. Ida Wells was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi in 1862 into slavery. Shortly after her birth, Ida Wells was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. She grew up then as a free black American, but as you can imagine, she faced intense discrimination. At the age of 16, both of Ida Wells' parents died to the yellow fever, as well as one of her siblings. So it fell on Ida Wells to take care of the rest of her siblings. She ended up lying about her age so that she could get a school teacher position to care for her family. 
After teaching for a little while in Mississippi, she realized she could be paid more if she moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and she arrived there as a school teacher and saved up enough money over years to buy a third of a newspaper called the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight. Now, I want you to imagine that you were living in Memphis, Tennessee in the late 19th century and that you had a newspaper. The question I would like to ask you is, what would you do? Because as you can imagine, you sell more newspapers if you publish stories that people want to hear. Stories that talk about how good Memphis is. But also, here's Ida Wells living in Memphis at a time where things are tense, to say the least. So Ida Wells looks around at Memphis and she sees all of this discrimination and racism happening around her. She then reads the other newspapers in Memphis and she realizes that all of these white newspapers are not going to report it. And the question turns to Ida Wells, what are you going to do with this platform that is the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight? And Ida Wells chose to stand up for what is right and to stand up without fear. She began to publish stories about discrimination. She began to publish stories about racism in Memphis. She began to publish stories about how the system wasn't working for black Americans. The Memphis free speech and headlight was popular and read in the black community of Memphis, but it was shunned and spat upon by white Americans in Memphis during the same day. Now this all came to a head when one of Ida Wells' friends was murdered by a lynch mob. Now, we often associate lynching with hangings, but that is a severe misunderstanding of what a lynching is. To lynch someone is when a mob kills someone for an alleged offense with or without a legal trial. And this lynching is racially motivated. So in other words, it's when white Americans look at how the legal landscape is treating black Americans and they think to themselves, the system isn't being harsh enough, the system isn't moving quickly enough, or we need to send a clear message to black Americans about justice. And for that reason, they take the law into their own hands and without a trial, they murder who they believe is guilty there on the spot. This is a horrific scene to imagine in one's mind where people are chanting and cheering the violent destruction of a human life. So Ida Wells' friend is lynched by a mob and she cannot believe it. She is devastated by this loss. And if you were Ida B. Wells, I would like to ask you a question. What would you do? Because as you can imagine, it's not real popular to bring up the injustices and the sins of lynch mobs in the paper. And if a black American woman living in Memphis in the late 19th century were to begin to investigate what lynch mobs actually were doing, oh, there's probably going to be some trouble coming her way, right? So what would you do in the storm of this sin of lynchings? Ida Wells chose 
to write about it. But she just didn't write about it. She investigated it. She went into the facts. She would interview families of the victims of these lynch mobs. She would then report on the facts and talk to police and read police reports to understand what happened. She then published in May 21 of 1892 in the free speech these words in an editorial she wrote about lynchings in Memphis, Tennessee. Here are the words of Ida Wells. Nobody in this section of the country believes the old threadbare lie that Negro men rape white women. She wrote these words because so much of the justification for lynch mobs was that white Americans felt they needed to send a message to black Americans that if a black man touches our white woman, there will be hell to pay. You will not receive a fair trial. You will die on the spot. So Ida Wells writes, no one believes that this actually happens, that Negro men rape white women. She then goes on to say in the same editorial, if Southern white men are not careful, they will overreach themselves and public sentiment will have a reaction. A conclusion will then be reached which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. What Ida Wells is hinting at here is that there are white women in Memphis who desire to be in romantic relationships with black men. This was a bit of a bombshell in 1892. <laughs> it was so bold, so pointed, so clear that white Americans living in Memphis were furious about it. They sent her death threats, and this came to a head when in the middle of the night, shortly after this article was published, they set fire to the printing press of the Free Speech and Headlight, Ida Wells' newspaper. Assuming that they were coming for her next, Ida Wells fled from Memphis, Tennessee, all the way to New York City. Here she was, very far from home, living in a city that she could barely imagine before, and she was trying to pick up the pieces of what her life now was. Now imagine for a moment that you were Ida Wells and you were living in New York City. A question that I would ask you is, what would you do here? Would you say to yourself, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness I made it out of Memphis, Tennessee alive. I barely escaped. Clearly, I need to lay low for a little while. I need a break. I need a rest from all of this injustice. But that's not what Ida Wells did. Instead, she decided that she was going to take the sins of lynch mobs public. And she published an essay just a few months later called Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases. I highly recommend you read this essay. It's not very long, but it's incredibly informative, and it teaches us a lot today about lynchings a hundred years ago. In this essay, she writes some very profound words. She says, since my business has been destroyed and I am an exile from home because of that editorial, the issue has been forced. And as the writer of it, I feel that the race and the public generally should have a statement of the facts as they exist. 
So Ida Wells, through her investigative reporting and investigative journalism, comes to these numbers that she shares in this essay. She points out that in the previous eight years before the essay, there were 728 lynchings in the South. Over 650 of those 728 lynchings were connected to a black man being accused of raping a white woman. Of those 650 lynchings, only one-third of those men were charged with rape. So over 400 lynchings in the South occurred when a white man accused a black man of raping a white woman, and that man never received a trial, let alone a fair trial. Not only that, but Ida Wells pointed out that white men often sleep with or sexually assault black women. However, white men despise white women who want to sleep with and be in romantic relationships with black men. She then calls out white men who aren't involved in the lynchings and says, if you remain silent while a lynching occurs or a lynching is happening in your town, then you are an accomplice. Lastly, she points out the double standard and how racism plays into these terrible, horrific lynchings. She tells the story of a man named Pat Hannafan, a white man who raped a black girl, and the injuries he inflicted on her have damaged her for life. Pat Hannafan went to jail and surprisingly was convicted of this crime. He was sentenced to just six months in jail, but then when he got out, he became a detective in the city. The black community was so angry about this that they decided they were going to form their own lynch mob and take justice into their own hands. The white community in this town heard about this lynching and they immediately surrounded the jail with 250 white citizens armed with Winchesters and guarded him. In this essay, Ida Wells calls out some very uncomfortable truths and asks America to change in the name of justice. Ida Wells was born into a storm of racial injustice, a storm of racial hatred. And somehow, someway, in the midst of that storm, she was able to stand up for what was right. And she stood up without fear. Now, here's where most people end the story of Ida Wells. But I would argue that we must keep going. Because the fact is, we dishonor the legacy of Ida Wells when we believe that she solved the problem of lynching. Because the sin of lynching continued on even after the life of Ida Wells. One of the most infamous and notorious and tragic stories of lynching happened in 1955. When a young boy went from Chicago, Illinois, down to a town, a very tiny town called Money, Mississippi. This boy's name was Emmett Till. And one day he walked into Bryant's grocery store to buy some bubblegum. The owner of the store, a man named Ray Bryant, was not in town. However, his wife, Carolyn Bryant, who was 21 years old, seven years older than Emmett Till, was at the store on that day. Now, what happened next is a matter of dispute, but there was some interaction between Emmett Till and Carolyn Bryant that made Carolyn Bryant very angry. According to Carolyn Bryant, 
Emmett Till said inappropriate things to her and wolf, wolf whistled at her. Not only that, but under sworn testimony in front of a judge without a jury present, Carolyn Bryant revealed that Emmett Till had grabbed her violently and also groped her. When Carolyn Bryant became upset, Emmett Till and his friend ran from the store because they were the, under the impression that Carolyn Bryant was going to get a pistol. And while they thought that was the end of that, everything changed four days later when Ray Bryant returned home to Money, Mississippi. His wife, Carolyn, told him about what happened from her perspective, and he became enraged. So enraged that he took his stepbrother to go find Emmett Till in the middle of the night in the house he was staying in. They raided the house, pulled Emmett Till out, and dragged him to a local barn. In this barn, they repeatedly tortured Emmett Till till his body became dismembered and then finally shot him in the head. They tied his body to a cotton gin fan with barbed wire and threw him into a river. After some time passed, J.W. Millam and Ray Bryant had their day in court for the murder of Emmett Till. And before an all-white jury and a white judge, the court found them innocent and not responsible for the death of this 14-year-old. Less than a year later, Look Magazine paid both J.W. Millam and Ray Bryant's $4,000 each to tell the story of the murder and torture of Emmett Till. They happily confessed to the crimes because they were protected by Mississippi's double jeopardy laws and talked in gruesome racist detail about why they killed Emmett Till and how he deserved what he had come into him. If Emmett Till was not murdered that day, there is a good chance he would still be alive with us. Today, he would be 79 years old. And we must also acknowledge that Carolyn Bryant is still alive and she is 86 years old. In 2007, she told a historian named Timothy Tyson that she lied while she was under oath and made up the entire part where Emmett Till grabbed her and groped her. That part is not true. Lynchings are not a problem of America's past. Lynchings are a problem of America's present. And I will never forget the day when this became abundantly clear in my own personal experience back in 2012. In that year, in a small city named Sanford, Trayvon Martin, who was just 17 years old, went out from his dad's fiance's house to go buy Skittles at a local convenience store. He went back to the housing development where his dad's fiance lived. As he was walking back, he began to be followed by a man named George Zimmerman, who was 29 in the year 2012. George Zimmerman watched as this young boy entered the housing development, and he thought to himself, this boy looks suspicious. 
He called 911 and told them that he was trailing a young African-American male because he was about to deal drugs. The person on the line told George Zimmerman to stop following him. They begged him to leave him alone. Trayvon Martin at this point sensed that George Zimmerman was following him, and so he put up his hood and began to run faster. Immediately, George Zimmerman started running faster to keep up with Trayvon Martin, eventually tackled him. There was a struggle until George Zimmerman pulled out his gun and shot and killed Trayvon Martin. Some time passed, and a jury composed of 10 members, eight of which were white and two of which were Hispanic, found that George Zimmerman was innocent in the death of Trayvon Martin. The story of Trayvon Martin is a modern-day lynching. A white man took the law into his own hands and acted as jury and executioner and murdered Trayvon Martin. The brokenness of this justice system is exposed when the defense attorney of George Zimmerman, a man named Don West, said this about jury selection. He said there was a clear racial aspect to our jury selection. Rightfully or wrongfully, we were more suspicious, if you will, of African-American jurors because of the way the case was presented in the media. Not only that, but George Zimmerman took the gun that he used to murder Trayvon Martin and placed it on an auction site, encouraging those who might bid on it to, quote, own a piece of American history. The gun sold for $250,000. And then just two months ago, in December of 2019, George Zimmerman filed a lawsuit against Trayvon Martin's family for $100 million in damages. I, I have a hard time telling this story today. While I try my best not to hate George Zimmerman, I will tell you that George Zimmerman makes it really hard for me to believe that we are all created in the image of Jesus Christ. I tell you the story of Emmett Till and Trayvon Martin today because these are divisive stories. There are people who do not want to talk about Trayvon Martin. Whenever people erect monuments to Emmett Till, there is always vandalism that is soon to follow because white supremacists don't want us exposing how they have run things in American history. I tell you all of this because we have this sense that when we talk about black history, we often talk about how these heroes of black history would fit into society today and they would be so proud of us. I don't think anything could be further from the truth. If Ida Wells was alive during Emmett Till's day, she would have written essays. She would have published articles. She would have written books exposing the horrific nature of this crime and the lack of justice that went to Ray Bryant, Carolyn Bryant, and J.W. Millam. If Ida Wells was alive with us today, she would passionately advocate for justice for Trayvon. She would point out the hypocrisy of this governmental system and say, we need justice reform now. And the fact is that our country, the United States of America, is in a storm and has been in a storm for our entire existence of racial disharmony and hatred. 
And in the middle of this storm, it is rather intimidating to try to fix things, isn't it? It's rather intimidating to try to push back on organizations that you work for to promote racial equality. It's intimidating to go to a family dinner and to hear your family say racist things and try to confront them, isn't it? And in the midst of this storm of racial hatred, I believe Jesus comes to us walking on water and whispering to us, it is I, do not be afraid. Do not allow fear to dictate what you will do or what you will not do in this situation. But instead, may we have the courage to stand up for what is right. And may we have the audacity to stand up without fear. My brothers and sisters, that is what it means to follow Jesus. That is what it means to be part of the miracle of this story. And that is what it means to see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.